0: Go Check with the ADM, a podcast where I get the wonderful opportunity to speak with someone in-depth about a topic I'm deeply interested in. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and joining me this week is Ronan Givoni. He is an author, founder of the Wordless Music Series and Orchestra, and has worked as a producer for concert venues and music festivals in the United States and all over the world. I just finished reading his most recent book, Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense, And I am delighted to welcome him onto the show to talk about Pearl Jam and all related subjects. So Ronan, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Yeah, and it's, we were actually talking before we started recording, difficult for me to contain myself about launching right into the book and about Pearl Jam, since it's one of the things that I think for a lot of people defines me, it's... Like I'm a fan of the Philadelphia Flyers. I'm a fan of Star Wars. I'm a fan of Pearl Jam. It's like on the mount. (laughs) It's on the Mount Rushmore along with video games of my interest. Um, So I wanted to set the stage first before we really dive into the book, which I did enjoy. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, what's your background in music in general, and then how did becoming an author enter the equation?
1: Yeah, um, I'm uh, sort of. uh part-time writer, I guess, at best. Uh, this is my second book that I have written. The first one was uh, entry in the 33 and a Third series, which you might know uh, is, like, uh, different titles, each about a different album. Um, I uh, am not a musician. I'm not really a critic or a journalist. Um, I, I really approach this book, this Pearl Jam book, as a fan, as I try to say, you know, in the beginning, um, I've seen them, you know, a fair number of times, uh, but, I, you know, like, I, like, you know, 99.9% of the people there, I, you know, buy my own ticket and I, and I, you know, see the show from my own seat, not backstage or side stage or anything like that. And, um, yeah, I, um, I've been fortunate in that, for the last, you know, 10 plus years, I have worked in the music industry, but, a sort of different sector of it than the one that Pearl Jam occupies. I, um, I, I work primarily in classical music, which is maybe a slightly weird, um, uh, you know, point of entry for a Pearl Jam band. But I, um, I started an, uh, concert series and an orchestra here in New York. And I've been very fortunate to work for a couple of um, venues and festivals and presenters. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I I know, you know, a bit about music from the concert production angle from, you know, everything from rock bands playing with orchestras to, uh, film screenings with live orchestral accompaniment. Um, but what I, you know, but what you read about in the book and, and, uh, you know, just my qualifications such as are, uh, you know, are are really pretty separate from my day job. So, um, yeah. And, you know, and I think like you and, and like a lot of people in Pearl Jam's fan base, you know, I, I was, um, you know, 13 years old when, um, you know, their first record came out. So I, you know, I, I, happen to be the right age sort of, I mean, I think that that is the best age to fall in love with anything, whether it's, you know, a sports team or, um, you know, a comic book or whatever. Um, we're but, quite impressionable <laughs> at that age. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Um, I think that's a constant. Um, and so, yeah, that's really, um, you know, just kind of, uh, the, the, the qualifications such as they are that I, I bring to it.
0: Well, and your first book was a deep dive on the punk band Jawbreaker and their 24 revenge hour, uh, revenge therapy album. So what yes. did you take from that experience to gain confidence or to tackle the subject of Pearl Jam? How did that sort of prep this next book?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, for so the the thirty three and a third series, um, you know, there's uh There's like a proposal process that happens every, you know, I think it's every two or three years. Um, You know, you you have to kind of answer a handful of questions and I think write like a sample chapter. And I um, actually applied twice. I think I did it the first time, you know, maybe five or six years ago. And I think I left it to the last minute. And, you know, it just it was turned down, I think, sort of rightly so. And then you know another two years went by, and, and I saw that they were accepting proposals again. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to just put this in one more time. And if it, you know, if it doesn't go through, then that's just a sign that, like, you know, maybe this was not in the cards, and and you're, you know, you, you know, you, you may have wanted to write books when you were in high school or college or whatever, but you know, it's probably time to move on. And so the second time around the proposal was accepted, I, you know, I had to, you know, I had a deadline and I had, I had to write it and then kind of cut it down quite a bit to fit in the word count. So, yeah, I I think that, you know, any writer will tell you that the first one, like, is largely a matter of confidence and Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, sort of proving to yourself, I think, as much as anyone, that you can just adhere to a deadline and work with an editor and, you know, put yourself in the place of a reader and ask yourself, you know, who am I writing this for? Am I writing it for an expert or am I writing it for someone who knows nothing about the subject? And yeah, it, um, you know, in, in a way, You you know, Pearl Jam is, I think, a much bigger topic in that they've they've been around for you know much longer and have quite a bit more music. Um, But you know, in terms of structure and in terms of process, um, you know, I I think you know what I took from the first one was definitely just um, you know, it's a matter of like waking up every day. And doing it for a certain number of hours and, and kind of figuring out what is your routine and what is your most productive, um, you know, arrangement of your time. And, uh, you know, just something you have to figure out on your own.
0: Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to talk with you about is why Pearl Jam? And, you know, before I get to that question, I a little bit of disclosure about my my fandom, because um, like early in the in the book, Not For You!, Uh, You offer a brief biography of yourself and kind of described yourself as, quote, unquote, a typical Pearl Jam fan being born in 78, growing up as a, as you say, a child of the 90s. And I I like how you included, you know, you're a WMA white male American. uh, And I definitely fall into that category. So I was born in 76 to, you know, white middle class parents in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, My mom worked at a casino. My father, who was a veteran, Uh, worked as a state trooper in New Jersey. I had a couple of older siblings, pretty normal life, except for me, I was born with a congenital heart condition. And my folks were told after I was born that I'd be lucky to survive a week. And I'm happy that I'm 44 years old and and still kicking. Um, So my heart condition limited a lot of activity as a child um, because I had low oxygen in my blood and couldn't really do a lot of sports and exercise and stuff like that. So I was just aware of my own mortality at a very young age. And then when I was about to turn nine, my father was shot and killed in the line of duty. So I like had all that, like that was my childhood. And that was just normal for me because that's what I went through. And so I, you know, grew up as any other kid, like, you know, enjoyed sports and movies and music and being into. Jersey, it was a lot of hair metal and glam rock. (laughs) So definitely enjoyed uh, like Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, all those bands. Um, And one of my good friends gave me a tape and he's like, you have to listen to this. I'm like, all right, whatever. And it was Pearl Jam 10. So I played my Walkman again, dating myself. And that was sort of it. I just remember Alive coming on and just this defiant chorus of saying I'm still alive. And then the album ends with release where it's talking about this relationship with like this father you don't know. And like, I was done. Like uh, that's how I got hooked into Pearl Jam. And I've just been a fan ever since and have, you know, followed them very closely. And I was wondering like, what's your origin story? Like wh- what was it about Pearl Jam? that's like, Hey, this isn't another band to me. This is something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, it you know, I mean some pretty similar, you know, I would say that, um, You know definitely alive and 10 you know was um i mean i remember being you know i guess it was 12 13 years old and uh you know being with my brother and and uh seeing it come on you know mtv and um yeah i i mean i i really like one thing i remember very clearly is like uh I think it was the jeremy single like where there was uh you know footsteps on it and there was like a different mix of jeremy and like and and that was just you know i think for a lot of people like the first band that you just um you know you just listen to on on this this level of like you know oh the, there's a different you know vocal mix in in the single version than there is on the album version and um you know all these people say that they love Pearl Jam, but do they know about, you know, this (laughs) B-side that's just on the single? So, um, yeah, you know, I, like, I'm someone who, um, you know, I'm just a reader, like, I like books and I like bookstores and um, I'm always by myself kind of sliding over to the music section in bookstores and, um, you know, it's, I guess, you know, it had always been somewhat strange to me that, you know, I, I love Nirvana and I loved, um, you know, nine inch nails and smashing pumpkins and, and all their, their contemporaries. But, you know, there's something like a dozen books now, I think about Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, you know, like graphic novels and documentaries and all that. And, you know, It was interesting to me to realize at a certain point that, like, you know, these two bands came from the same moment, um, the same scene. And yet, like, Nirvana is, like, the definition of a critic's band, like, the definition of, like, a writerly band that, um, you know, so many people have tried, uh, you know, their, their hand at writing about. And yet Pearl Jam, like for whatever reason, um, I don't know if it was because they were so ubiquitous at one point. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely not a critic's band. They're not a writer's band. Um, and so, you know, uh, I knew all along that there was, um, you know, a biography that had come out in 1998. I knew that there was the sort of, uh, semi-official, you know, coffee table book that came out um, around Pearl Jam 20. But other other than that, there was really nothing. Um, And, you know, having just finished a book about Jawbreaker, which is, like, you know, the definition of a cult band, it's, it's, you know, one of those groups that if someone does know about them, chances are, like, they're obsessed with them, but that's, you know, an, an extreme minority. But Pearl Jam, like... You know, I, I mean, even people like I have many friends who, you know, have not even bought a CD since like 1993. But if you say to them like, "Do you remember, um, you know, the the Video Music Awards from that year? Do you remember, you know, Eddie Vedder on MTV Unplugged?" It was just like burned into their consciousness. Like uh so. Yeah, I I, like I knew just from a writing standpoint that, um, you know, it was it was like a wider open field. But yet, you know, like this is a different subject, but like, you know, there was a whole ordeal about like getting someone to take the book and just like a lot of meetings and a lot of conversations with, with like editors and agents and people who like were quite dubious that there was even like a desire for, for a book like this. So um, I learned a lot just about like, um, you know, their, you know, how they're perceived really, like in the culture, I think now you know, as opposed to back then.
0: Yeah. And and that ties into something uh, that I wanted to get into about the structure of the book, because there's a few things about how the book is structured and how information is presented that, that I found really interesting. So, like I said, you begin with an introduction and like, I think one of the first things you write is, quote, first, a confession and a caveat. I've only seen them 57 times, end quote. And the the numbers presented the way I read it and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is like you presented as both an admission and an apology, um, again, because you label yourself as your typical Pearl Jam fan. And this entire section of the book in the beginning just had me thinking about gatekeeping and how that's really created divisions and fandom since really the dawn of time. Um, so in many realms, you know, only people who had the right information or knowledge could, could be considered a real fan of something And there's a spectrum for any fandom, uh, including Pearl Jam. And, you know, I've, as a psychologist, I have a background in statistics and done some research and writing in the past. And I think of like a normal distribution uh, where all the people that exist are on that distribution with, you know, a few people on the low end have probably never heard of Pearl Jam. The vast majority of folks are familiar with them, maybe enjoy a few songs. And then the further you get out towards the edge on the top of that distribution, you have the more passionate maybe irrationally passionate uh, fans on that side. And <laughs> so in my day-to-day life with friends, with family and coworkers, I'm the pro Jam guy. Like I'm at the top of that distribution. You know, I listen to them. I've been pretty faithful in terms of like buying their new music. I've, I think seen them about 10 times in concert. I have a few posters on my wall. I've made pilgrimages out to Wrigley in Seattle to see them. Uh, but when I go to a show, I'm maybe somewhere in the middle at best, yeah and so i was wondering like why was it important for you to start out the book with an acknowledgement of where you are along that distribution of fandom
1: yeah well i would say that first you know everything you see up front like i mean it's important to say like is you know it's meant to be humorous like it's mm-hmm. it's uh like i i um you know i'm aware as you say that like there's a fair amount of irrationality involved in this 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 world and so that's just me like fessing up to it you know at first i i mean i would say that like you know if i were <clears throat> in a bookstore and i were browsing and i found this book and i were weighing whether to buy it or not all those questions that you see, like in the first five pages, I, I would say are, you know, things that I would want entered myself. I would want to know, like, what is the stance of this person and what is their authority? There's like a funny sort of self-deprecating way to admit to one's like eccentricities. And then there's like, you know, I, I don't want to like call out any names, but like, you know, the raw criticism and music writing in general, like is not distinguished by its literary qualities. You know, like it's a lot of people who are like, you know, I was backstage and I was here and I know this person and and this is how qualified I am. And, you know, I, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I think that like, you know, sooner or later, if you know your stuff, like it's, I, I think that people can tell, but I, you know, I, I was not trying to pretend to be anything. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I've never met any of the guys I've never interviewed them. Like I'm not, you know, like there are, you know, there's like 50 writers <laughs> who like, if Pearl Jam wanted to write a, their own story, they could call and, you know, and that's a pretty distinguished list, you know, people like Cameron Crowe and Jonathan Cohen and Mark Wilkerson. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm just trying to be like, super transparent way up front and to, um, and and, you know, as you say, like there are, you know, there are gatekeepers in this community. Like it's, it's, you know, one thing I had to figure out pretty early on was like, is this a book for people who have only seen 10 plus shows? Like, is this a book for, um, people who like maybe haven't even thought about Pearl Jam in 25 years? Like, so, I feel like they are, you know, one of the few groups who can, you know, justify that, that sort of treatment that like, I mean, there's just not that many rock bands that have been around for 30 years, but, you know, like Eddie Vedder, like for some funny reason, like, you know, everyone felt compelled to have an opinion about him in 1994. And, you know, as a writer, that's just a gift, you know, for a subject.
0: Yeah, they like you talked earlier about these flashbulb memories that everyone has, um, just with how music was just different back then. It was more of a shared experience, less fragmented than it is now, or at least seems to me it is now. And I think one of the first things I I wrote to you, because we were going back and forth, you know, trying to schedule this this uh, talk. And I think I was a little clumsy the first way I said it, because I had tried to. Kind of give you a compliment of like, you know, I, I found it impressive that you were trying to talk about the band from you, you certainly offer opinions, but not just from your own perspective. I, I think a goal of the book is to put them in context of other things, other events that were happening. And, you know, one of the other interesting things about the book is that, you know, there's some you know, significant sections of the book that talk about topics other than the band Um, So you talk, get into details about some socioeconomic issues, political, global issues, um, just examples that come up, the anti-abortion movement, uh, genocide in Rwanda, uh, protests and ensuing violence during that World Trade Organization meeting in Seattle, uh, not to mention the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I was wondering, was that a thought process um, as you were developing the book? Like how baked in was that versus did that develop over time?
1: That's a really great question. I mean, I can tell you, um, you know, I I, I knew all along that, um, you know, I wanted to talk about politics and I wanted to talk about just what was going on in the world, I think, uh, during their formative years. But there was one chapter in particular um, that, you know, it was one that early on I knew I wanted to include, but – until I kind of started digging into it, it was um, it was the chapter about uh, self-pollution radio, the you know the kind of home broadcast that they did in 1995. And I knew um, you know all along that <clears throat> I wanted to talk about this. Originally, I was kind of framing it as as like you know, no one would confuse Pearl Jam for like a technologically savvy band, you know, like, uh, but, you know, I think they sort of ended up like accidentally doing, you know, the first, uh, you know, what would become webcasts, um, you know, uh, and so, uh,
0: it was very, you pop know, up I, the I, volume like a podcast back in the day.
1: Exactly. Like, yeah. uh, and, and so, you know, and so just to do my diligence, I went back and, you know, found on YouTube, the, you know, there's like a four hour broadcast and, and, you know, the first, I think five minutes or so is, um, you know, uh, like a monologue that Ed gives about the, it, it's interesting because the, he doesn't really spell it out, but the subtext is, um, you know, the election that had just happened where the Republicans led by New Gingrich had, um, you know, taken over both houses of Congress, and and what Ed is saying in the in the monologue, he's you know is like, there's a lot of people right now in our country, who um, are overflowing with information. I think is the way he puts it. Um, and he says, you know, what we're trying to offer now is, you know, it certainly doesn't count as equal time, but you know, this is our way of. Um, you know, wanting to let you know that if if you are not OK with what is going on um, in Washington, that there are people who agree with you and that, um, you know, you're, you're not by yourself. And and, you know, I remember just every hair on my arm standing up because, you know, he's talking about Newt Gingrich, but he's really talking about this, this right-wing extremism that, you know, you can draw a through line to today. And it was at that point that I realized like, um, you know, wow, this, the story, like, you know, like, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it, in a way, you know, I wonder if, if I had been writing it, you know, during Obama's second term, like if it, you know, if it would have been kind of the same book because that, you know, it, it, Um, you know it was started a month before the election and that was you know in 2016 and and that was really the 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 context of it all along and so I, I really started seeing you know obviously Uniondale and Iraq and George Bush like I really started seeing a lot of this stuff in the context of just um you know where it led today and um yeah, you know, I—I I mean, I think it's easy to overdo that—that that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I, I, I should mention too, like, you know, that grew out of my feeling that, like, you know, I would go to the bookstore and I would say, like, where is there a book that I can read about, like, what happened in America during the Bill Clinton years? Like, it's—it's it's surprisingly not to be found. Like, uh, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, keeping on this theme, you know, there's it's towards the end of the book. There's, you know, a a good eight, 10 pages about the rise of Ralph Nader and how Ed got involved in that campaign. And, you know, one of the things I found is that sort of the detail about Nader's rise and everything that went on with that election. It's sort of at least in terms of collection of time spent on it kind of overshadows some of the other members of the band uh, like Jeff. Amen. It's mentioned, you know, throughout the book and, um uh, you know, MacReady and Gossard are mentioned as well, but it's not as like deep of a dive where the Nader section is just kind of a chunk of like, here's some information on Nader and, and how it related to Ed and what was going on politically at that time. So I, you kind of hinted at this with the, um, you know, you know, Ed's monologue or that four hour webcast as, as a researcher, as a writer, you have decades of, monologues from him of Ed speaking right. to crowds speaking about current events giving interviews or not giving interviews and being curt with people but there's not a ton of footage or of of Stone or Jeff being like hey here's what i think it, it is mainly Ed right exactly and you know i think i think most of the book it's about the band but it seems to be like through Ed's point of view and one of the questions I, I was thinking of, like, I wonder, how do you even separate those two things right now? Of like Ed versus Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam versus Ed. Um, just what was it like to to write about the band in that manner?
1: Yeah, no, you're. I mean, you definitely picked up on something. I mean, you know, I, I originally had, for what it's worth, I had this chapter. Um, I think it may have even been before, like the off ramp stuff, but I had like I don't know. 10 odd pages just about like the guys in the band and their personalities and and kind of the funny ways that they reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I had, I mean, I think I just had a couple of people who were like, you know, dude, you gotta get to the story (laughs) eventually. Like, uh, and, um, you know, it's, I, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, I regret, you know, that there is sort of not more, you know, just, I I mean, about like kind of the individual guys, but, you know, I, I I feel like it's also important to say, like, like I'm one of those people who sort of feels like that Ralph Nader election, like was the formative event of the last, you know, 15 or 20 years. Like, I, I I mean, I, I think it's easy to kind of Overstate, But, you know, when I think of it in terms of, like, you know, would Thomas Young be alive, like, if Ralph Nader had not run, like, you know, would, you know, would, would Iraq be what it is, would Afghanistan be what it is? Like, you know, I, I don't know that you can say it down to, you know, Trump and Obama, but, but, you know, for me, like, you know, and I, and I don't, I wonder, like, how good a job I did, but like, I mean, they were not alone, but, you know, like you had Pearl Jam, Raising the Machine, you know, you had all these bands who were saying like, you know, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, like there's really not much difference between them and, you know, whatever the far right Republican Party and, you know, you could argue that like. like maybe that's not the most considered political stance, like or you could argue that like, you know, it's not the job of a radical or an artist to be, you know, reasonable, like uh, you know, or 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 to, to think in the same way as a liberal. Like I I mean I I guess I feel like a lot of the events that I wrote about, you know, whether it was David Gunn or Rwanda or even, you know, like, you know, Kurt Cobain, like, um, I just wonder, I guess, like how much people really remember these things, you know what I mean? Like, and I, and I do, and not that what I did is means anything like, but y- you, know, you just wonder like if, if these events, like, you know, one thing I always think about is like, I you know, I, I had, I, I had a, a really amazing, um, like Researcher who helped me and, and read the book and, and gave me really detailed feedback, and he's a younger person, you know. But but one thing he said to me was like, you know, he sort of flagged the David Gunn stuff, and he said, you know, surely he can't be the first doctor who was killed by a pro-life protester, you know, he, he said, surely, you know, like this must just have been happening forever. And, you know, I wanted to grab him and just say like, no, you know, like, like it actually, like he was the first, you know, like, like, and what, and what is going on right now? Like, we just think it's, it's how it's always been, but it's not, you know what I mean? Like it started at a certain point in history and, and like, you know, maybe those eight or ten pages like would have been better devoted to like I don't know another show on the 2003 tour. Like, but I, you know, like I, I, I really wanted to read some of that somewhere, and uh, you know, it's uh, you can't say that you know Pearl Jam and Ed were not there, like, and that they didn't just plant their flag
0: yeah and I mean for me as a you know a fan of the band that's been aware of their you know if you want to put it the umbrella term of advocacy over the years, there's some things I was certainly aware of, and there's other things in the book that I was like, oh, I don't think I knew that and like I really appreciated that context, and also in light of recent events it's there's times where you're reading the book and it's uh, it's harrowing to think about how you know, like where we are now, where things were back then. And does that feel like a very long time ago? Or does that feel just like yesterday? And the book sort of, it's not heavy handed, I don't think. Like you just sort of, you put it out there and almost the pace of the book, it's like you're onto a next thing, but it's like, whoa, wait, what did I just read? Um, it forces you, I think, to sit with some of these things and consider it In addition to talking about specific songs, specific performances, but it places them in this context of, you know, there's not that many individuals like them that have been traveling about the world and had their hands in all these different issues and really went out on a limb and tried to do something about it with whatever form Mm. they had and you kind of brought up the, the Union Dale concert, which is featured in Pro Jam 20 as well, where this crowd, and I think you put it in the book of, you know, cops and firemen and other first line responders are watching Pro Jam, and then all of a sudden, Eddie's out there singing Bush and, and, and things get intense. And, yeah. you know, there's definitely um, a part of their audience that did not care for their politics, even though they would buy tickets to the show and our fans, they, they didn't want any part of all the other baggage that came with it. And I I thought it was useful that you, you very much included that in the book.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I think that that is, you know, in terms of their story, um, you know, really one of the the interesting things, you know, like I, I think it was either, um, I think it was Carrie Brownstein from Slater King. You know, she says at a certain point, like, you know, when we play, (laughs) like, you know, if we say, you know, something about the war in Iraq or about George W. Bush, like there's not a single person in the club who will bat an eyelash. But, you know, when Pearl Jam does it, um, you know, you're automatically talking to, you know, I don't know if it's 50-50 necessarily, but you're definitely talking to a mixed room. And, you know, and that at least in theory is what you know pop culture used to be it used to be this the sort of tent where you know people of different backgrounds maybe they don't like find consensus on it but you know you can sit in a movie theater or you can sit in a in a you know lecture hall and uh and and, and yeah i think that um you know there were definitely times uh, like you know one I, I wrote a chapter about um two thousand and four and the vote for change tour, and that you know I ended up cutting just because you know i, I there were many I mean, there are many things that I, I wish I could have kept that I just didn't have room for but You know, there I mean, even then, there were quite a few people in the crowd, um, you know, who were like, I don't care. You know, like, I don't I don't even know what what they're here talking about, but I just want to see Pearl Jam. And there's actually they made, um, you know, there was a really good documentary that was made about the 2004 Vote for Change. Sure. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend it. But, you know, there's there's this classic scene of like. I don't know, three or four bros in the parking lot, you know, just like, you know, pounding beers and taking nitrous oxide or whatever. And and, you know, the the documentary guys are like, you know, who you vote for, like, you know, are you registered to vote? And, you know, it's it's just a joke. You know what I mean? Like uh, so. So. Um, I don't know. Like it's like you said, it's easy to kind of um, be heavy handed with that sort of thing. But yeah, I like, you know, I, I think that those shows, especially Dale, were interesting in that, like, I don't think Pearl Jam knew that they had that much opposition in their crowd. But I also think that like, that was the beginning of the country really changing. You know what I mean? Like where, um, you know, one minute we were all, you know, watching the nine eleven, uh you know, memorial concert. And then the next yeah. minute it was, it was like off to war, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and I like in the book, cause again, I don't think I, I knew this at the time and, you know, reading in the book was, was kind of helpful to contextualize that, that they were touring overseas leading up to that. And yes. where they're, you know, performing bush leaguer to a crowd of you know, i think they're in australia or something so uh, of course you know they're not getting that same type of reactions when they do it in the states and they did in the states i think somewhere out and maybe it was like denver or or somewhere uh and they get a little bit of a reaction and they sort of shelf that song for a bit but then they bring it back out and it, it uh it, it got notched up in terms of the reaction
1: Well, you realize too, like that, I mean, I I don't think I even knew this until I look at the the dates, but, you know, the Pearl Jam stuff in Australia was like weeks, if not days after the Dixie Chicks thing happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, I mean, the Dixie Chicks were eviscerated and Ed, I mean, like, I don't know if it's a difference between a, a, a white male versus a woman saying it, but they were, you know, like Pearl, you know, Pearl Jam didn't get it easy, but they still got a bit of a pass, you know, next to the Dixie Chicks.
0: And, and I mentioned to you ahead of time, like I, in terms of these folks that didn't like that message, uh, you know, I was related to one of them, like I went to see Pearl Jam in 2006 in Camden, New Jersey, just right across the river from, from Philly, uh, with my brother and much other folks, uh, and he was a professional firefighter. And so we're like his friends, uh, our friends, And he had been up to World Trade Center days after the towers came down because he was part of an urban search and rescue team. So, to me, they have an amazing concert. They play over thirty songs. They open with "Wash," like it was just awesome. And I'm thinking, like, oh, this is a great moment with like me and my brother. Like, we'll remember this. And afterwards, and certainly alcohol is a factor. Yeah. But he's just like lacing into Eddie Vedder. It's like not about the show, not about the songs, like what we heard. It's like he's a liberal piece of garbage and just wouldn't let it go. And it turned into this argument. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, this is not what should be happening. And at the same time, like, I'm like, well, this should be happening. We should be having this conversation because I think your politics are wrong and, you know, back and forth and all this. And th- there was always that unease between my brother and I. And, you know, I've, I've been very open on this podcast before that my, my brother ended his life by, by suicide a few years ago. And like, I think back to those moments and I'm like, oh, man, couldn't we have just enjoyed that? Um, or you, you think about that. But at the same time, it's like that's what made him him. Like he liked like to rise out of people and he had very strong opinions. And when I dug my heels in and didn't go along with it and said, like, no, here's what I believe, like it would it would spark tensions. And I think strangely enough, like Pearl jam was one of those topics for us. Like he liked the band. He sell, he would always play it for me, but at the same time, if it got to politics about it, it, it got dicey. And I imagine it, it's that way for, for a lot of people out there with them where they like the music, but they don't think about the other stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, you know, my entire family, uh, is, you know, for better or worse, trump supporters you know like so i am i i know all too well what it means to have
0: well i think you you mentioned on the the live on four two uh, the live on four likes podcast that somebody read it and saw that you were left of uh sanders and they just threw the book at you or something
1: (laughs) yeah no he was i mean that that was my relative who said you know he's like who is left of sanders like trotsky you know (laughs) like uh like but um yeah i I mean, I don't know, you know, like, I, I don't know if this was nine eleven, like that, like, you know, whereas before that, you could, you know, have a friendly disagreement with someone and it was just hypothetical. And then, you know, after that, it was like, you know, people thought of it as, as like a matter of life or death. Like, I, um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, it, I think it's also worth keeping in mind, like, on like a much less, you know, just serious note, like, you know, well before um, George W. Bush or 9-11 or any of that, you know, there was something about Ed in particular that I think just really got under people's skin. And it's interesting that he was just, you know, on whatever Howard Stern, you know, like yeah, who, split
0: segments of that.
1: Who, like you know used to be one of his more vocal critics, like used to just say like you know, um like you know, oh, it's so hard to be any better, you know like um i I don't know like uh like it, th- there is just something about them that like people have strong opinions about, but um yeah the like politics in particular it's um like i i I know what you mean. <laughs>
0: It was interesting you bring up the, the Howard Stern piece because that came out early November and that's right around the time I was like kind of in the middle of reading the book. And in a weird way, it was just very disarming or, or kind of mind-bending. It's like, yeah, that's that same guy that I'm reading about who... And I've even thought this before because even going years ago, you have this sort of mystique of Eddie Vedder and not wanting to be popular and not wanting to be famous. And at the same time, He's like performing Balls in Your Mouth with Jimmy uh, Fallon. It's like, that's interesting. Um, It's like he's definitely changed, I think, over the years. And now he's just sort of given these chill interviews to Howard Stern. It it does seem like a bit of an evolution, but but maybe not. I mean, you you spent years writing about him. Uh, What do you think about how that's transpired?
1: Well yeah, I mean I think we're all older, you know, like it's uh like you, you get older, you get mellower, you get I think just um you know, and and I mean I mean I think back to, you know, myself in my twenties, like I I thank God every day, you know, that there there isn't, you know, YouTube footage of, you know, me doing whatever, like so yeah, I mean, like I think it is a little bit funny, like could any of us have imagined in nineteen ninety four, like a world in which like Eddie Vedder's wife, like does an Instagram live thing, like during their election night party, like probably not like, uh, but um, you know, it's, he's been doing it for a real long time. And I think that like, I think he knows now like that people were after him for a very particular thing in 1993, 1994. And it's just, you know, a little bit different now.
0: Yeah. And, and you talk about this in the book at various times, just in, how Pearl Jam has um, outlived their contemporaries, and it, it's something I really think about a lot uh, and have conversations with folks because you know Pearl Jam's always been one of my favorite groups, if not like my favorite bands. Are really important to me. I, you know, mention that, and you know, I, I just think about all the other bands that I enjoyed around that time that are are not around. Like clearly, you know, Nirvana and, and Cobain, and you know, Dave Grohl. You know, continued on with Foo Fighters and they've been very successful you know Soundgarden broke up and you know I followed Cornell around and you know like the audio slave and he ended his life um, tragically you know Alice in Chains I really enjoyed Lane Staley overdosed and died and then even going outside of Seattle you know sort of Guns and Roses became a parody um, you know Metallica's still hanging around but you mentioned this a, f- you know, a few moments ago where you're saying like there's not many bands that have been around for three or four decades. And one of the first notes I wrote to myself when I was reading through your book about sort of their introductions is just, it's absurd they found each other. <laughs> just the way that came together, which I think people are familiar with the origin story. Um, but not only did they find each other, they could announce a concert pretty much anywhere in the world and tens of thousands of people would show up and that's just not normal. And... Just this is a very simplistic question, but why them? (laughs) Why are they still together and not going down one of the million other unfortunate paths that other bands and other performers have taken?
1: I mean, it's a great question. You know, like I like I think you're right that there is quite a bit of serendipity and luck and you know, sort of improbable good fortune that's part of it. Um, You know, I. I, um, you know, I think that their fans are a big part of it too. Like I, um, you know, I think that like, I have no doubt that there are Soundgarden fans and Alice in Chains fans and Nirvana fans that are just as mental as, you know, Pearl Jam people, but I just don't think that it's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, and I, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like I'm, I don't know. Like I think that if you had told the band themselves, you know, like especially around that, you know, 94, 95, 96 period, like, you know, there's going to be a Pearl Jam 20 and there's going to be a Pearl Jam 30 and there's probably going to be a Pearl Jam 40. You know, like I I I like I don't know. I I one thing I think that that is, you know, unfortunate is that you know, if you look at the bands of the 80s, you know... Yeah, like, artistically, you know, that's not really where my, um, you know, taste falls. But, like, as far as I know, like, everyone in Motley Crue is still around, right? Like, everyone
0: in, like... They're somehow still, still alive. they The Dirt, it's amazing that they're alive, yeah. but they are.
1: Like, Like, everyone in Bon Jovi, everyone in Poison, everyone in... I, you know, like, and, and it's like, I, like, I mean, God bless him. You <laughs> know, like it's, it's amazing. But like, but by comparison, you know, like the, that, that, that circle of bands, I mean, like, like Mudhoney is, is still around, you know, like, and, and, uh, but like, yeah, it's, it is surprising how, like. I don't know. Like you could say that there was like, you know, like some people would say like, well, it's not surprising at all because like that music was steeped in death and was steeped in nihilism and was steeped in darkness. But like, I don't know that that is totally true. You know, like I, like, I I don't know that all of Pearl Jam is, is necessarily steeped in darkness. Um, and like, and I don't, and, and yeah, I mean, there's like, um, there's plenty of songs, you know, I think after the fact that, that you can point to, but like, but, you know, this was a, a, like a community and a scene, you know, I think like, you know, whether it's in singles or in hype or whatever, like, like it was, you know, it was a lot of funny people and it was a lot of practical jokers and, and it was a lot of sarcasm and irony. And, um, you know, again, just the, the complete wipeout of that, that generation like it really is one of the bigger tragedies like and um you know i mean like in hip-hop like the deaths of Mm -hmm. biggie and tupac like that is you know that that the shadow that they cast over 90s music is is monumental by comparison like you know four or five of the grunge guys are gone like uh yeah you
0: mentioned shannon hoon and some of the other folks that just yeah didn't didn't persist didn't survive
1: so yeah and you know like that's i mean I, I'm, I'm still not sure that that whole part of the story has has really been done justice to
0: yeah and and one of the things that you were talking about like the music was especially listening to soundguard albums and cornell talking about just like suicide and other things it's like it's hard to listen to but i also found that certainly with, with Pro Jam, there also to be this element of hope of like, yeah, things are terrible. They can be better. They could be better. Like they should be better. Like there was that ad- advocacy, I think, to the, to the music that I don't, maybe it was unconscious for a while, but then as, you know, Ed was more vocal, we were talking about that. You know, I think that is there and maybe that's why it persists a little bit.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, a lot of those bands, you know, like it's, it's, it's a funny line between like, you know, like for instance, Raging as a Machine is, you know, is getting or was supposed to get back together and, you know, go on tour. But, you know, like they haven't made a record since 1999, you know, like, and so you say like, on the one hand, like is it a good thing that Raging's Machine didn't make, you know, like their backspacer and lightning bolt? Like probably, but like, would it be cool to have some new music from the last 21 years? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so it's, you know, longevity like is a weird thing because in rock and roll, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of built in this thing that like, you're not supposed to last 30 or 40 years, but you know, like, If you transpose that to a different art form, like if you if you told Martin Scorsese, like you're not supposed to be making movies for 30 years, you know, like that would be a joke. Like, uh, you know, like you're supposed to get better, um, you know, as you get older. And um, so, yeah, like it's um, I think it continues to be a mystery why like it's then and, you know, the Flaming Lips and, and a handful of other groups that are left. Um, and But I think now, you know, like they almost have a renewed lease. Like it's, it's like, well, they can't go out now.
0: Yeah. Your, your thoughts about some of the more recent albums kind of ties into something I wanted to ask you about. So the Not For You, uh, Pro Jam in the Present Tense, it, I think it clocks in at like 403 pages. And <laughs> it um, doesn't really address the, any of the disco, discography for the band from 2006 on beyond until after 350. I think. And it's a chapter titled Thin Air, which uh, if people are catching what you think about the recent albums, it's not subtle. (laughs) So, you know, before you reach a conclusion about the band's place in the world, um, you write, quote, somewhere around 2006, most of the magic goes out of their music, uh, end quote. And then you detail this era as, quote, the least substantial music of their career, end quote. So, you know, you don't really miss words. You haven't liked these albums. And, you know, there's a tone in the book at times that, and it, this happens, I think, fairly early on, where it's clear you're not going to be reverent to all things related to the band. It's not about putting them up on a pedestal or saying everything they did was right or correct or just or, or any of that. And, you know, you kind of talk about Green uh, River and Mother Lumbone, Mother Lumbone uh, described them as, quote, uh, dismal, dubious and abysmal bands. And a lot of people just will... You know, not that I recoiled from that. I just was like, oh, that's interesting. You're putting that opinion right out there. So, you know, I didn't take the words personally or hurtful. I thought, like I said, I I enjoyed the book overall. It was great. Um, But I wonder about their new music, like about their recent albums about evolving or not versus kind of your development or evolution as an individual. And it reminded me of this line. I think it's the last line to stand by me where they say, I never had friends later on in life like I did when I was 12 and then like Jesus does anyone. So I wonder for you, do you like at this point in your, in your life, in your thirties, forties, like do you form a similar type of relationship with music that you did when you were back in those impressionable years? Like, have you changed Do the bands change or maybe both of you?
1: I, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, I, I've definitely changed, you know, I, I mean, I would hope I've changed <laughs> if I had, you know, if I had the same taste in music as I did when I was 13, you know, like I don't think that that would be uh, whatever something to brag about. Um, You know, like I, I mean, yeah, like I, I mean, I try to, you know, I try to, to the extent I can like lay out my prejudices, you know, early on. I you know, I, I I mean I don't really listen to a lot of rock music anymore. I you know, when I when I'm at home and I'm listening to music, it's usually classical music or it's or it's, you know, ambient music, electronic music. Uh I've been listening more to jazz like during quarantine just because it's I don't know, like something different. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's um like, you know, it's just my opinion and it's um You know, it doesn't mean anything beyond that. Um, If I were twelve or thirteen, and I were, and the first record of I heard of Pearl Jam's were, you know, Avocado and Backspacer, would I be as, you know, transfixed by them? I don't think so. But like, who can say? You know, like I, I I try. I think (laughs) to the extent I can, like, just to you know, to own up to. Um, yeah, I mean, like, whatever you're into when it's 12, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, like, nothing is ever going to, you know, shine in that way. At the same time, I do think that, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, that something interesting was going on in music. You know, it's, it's, I think that if you look at the records that came out from 91 to 94, um, you know, like, mm-hmm. that, that was just, I mean, it was partly technology. It was partly being pre-internet. It was partly, you know, radio being what it was, but it was also like Dr. Dre followed by Nine Inch Nails, followed by Jane's Addiction, followed by, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana on on MTV, which is like a pretty amazing stretch, I think, like then and now.
0: Um, Yeah, and there's a segment of the book where you – and sorry to jump in, but where you talk about almost like this cause and effect of, you know, the 90s, you know, kids maybe having disposable income and MTV and just the way like music was packaged to people like did All these bands and stuff gain that level of popularity because they were so talented or was it the environment and that sort of made it more fertile ground for music to take off? It was this interesting sort of chicken and egg discussion in there about all the environmental factors that affected music
1: yeah like i mean i don't know how it was for you like in your school you know but but for me like i grew up in the suburbs and my friends were you know pretty normal i think like they were not musicians they were not jocks you know they were just nerds kind of like but you know what 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 just happened to be going on in 92, 93, 94 was like, we went home from school, whether it was, you know, seventh or eighth or ninth grade. And, you know, maybe some of your friends had cars, maybe they didn't, but you know, you went home and you turn on MTV and it was, you know, Pearl Jam unplugged or, or, um, you know, headbangers ball or 120 minutes or Yo MTV raps or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the next day you would go and say like, you know, I saw this video. It's called "Loser" by Beck. I saw this video called, you know, the sweater song by Weezer, and um, I don't know. Like I, like I, in my own life, I find that you know, whenever I see my friends, I say to them, you know, like what What's a cool movie you've seen? What's a cool book you've seen? You know, like what's just something you're excited about? And um, I, I don't know. It, it was like. W- I don't think any of us considered ourselves like especially artistic people, but it was like music was just it was like the currency and the language that we um related to each other in and um I don't know, it uh like if, if if it had been five years later before, it probably would have been like a pretty different, you know, palette of stuff we were listening to. But um you know, again I I, I I'm not, you know, the the fondness I I think you have for, for this period and and the fondness that I have too, like, I, I I feel like it's shared by a lot of people and it's, it's only partly, you know, I think the music itself, I think that like, there's this ambient sense of like, not like what is missing, but like, you know, just like by comparison with with that. And I, and I think that like, I don't know, a lot of people just kind of find something lacking like that, um, you know, that, that, that moment had like, so um, yeah, like in terms of judgments, in terms of opinions, like, I don't think, you know, I don't think it, it, um, I have many books, you know, that are like, you know, this person made this record in this year and, and whatever, like, um, you know, Pearl Jam people I think are pretty opinionated. Um, like I, you know, they're all about, you know, what is your favorite record? What's your favorite drummer? Like, uh, you know, um, and and so, uh, you know, if you were writing a book about um, Martin Scorsese, you know, like I don't think anybody would claim, you know, that um, whatever the movie he, he made about Japan five years ago is as good as Taxi Driver, you know, like like it should be OK to say, um, you know, that some Philip Roth books are better than others, you know, like that, that some of Quentin Tarantino's movies are better than others. And, you know, I think that Pearl Jam, that those guys have opinions too, like about which fans are good and, and not. And um, yeah, like I, um, you know, I tried to be fair and I tried to, you know, go back and listen and, and, um, you know, make sure that I was on solid ground. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's all it is. It's just, you know, some blowhard's opinion.
0: <laughs> well, you write early in the book and you say, quote, I'm, I'm not a journalist, a musician or a friend of the group, but a fan, someone who has never met them or gone backstage or seen them from anywhere but my own seat, uh, end quote. And then near the conclusion of the book, you write, and I, I thought this was cool and ties into what you are just talking about, quote, one of the nice things about loving a band, your life is changing your mind. And then um, after that quote, you kind of go into these three songs that, by a program that you really didn't care for and then something sort of flipped on its head and changed kind of gave the songs maybe new meaning or energy to you. And I got to thinking I was wondering like if if you did have access to the band or had a chance to talk to them for a little bit like what mm. sort of information might have resulted in you changing your mind about something <clears throat> that at this point in time it's like you know you wrote a book about them you spent it sounds like years of your life researching this stuff that you might have a pretty firm opinion on like what, what might be able to change their mind? What would you want to talk to them about?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, um, you know, I thought about this, like, I, I mean, you know, I think understandably one of the first questions a lot of people have is, you know, did you, did you get to talk to them? And, and have you heard from them and all that? And, and, you know, what I've said, you know, most of the time is that, uh, you know, it, it was never really on the table, you know, for me. Like I, I, I knew that, um, you know, I knew that as soon as I mentioned like a book and and this that that it would it would quickly get complicated. There was also just the matter of like, you know, I mean, I won't bore you with like how much I had to cut and and how much I, you know, kind of overwrote. But like, there, you know, the thought occurred to me like okay, let's just say you do have one or two hours with Ed or Stone or whatever. It's almost like a can of worms because, you know, you're like, you're like, where do I start? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I mean, like one thing that I'm, you know, that I was especially interested in with Ed is like, you know, he, he has left these kind of very interesting clues like about like his past. And, and, and I think all of them, like they've never really been all that linear in talking about, you know, this was me in high school and whatever, like anyway, good reason. But, um, you, you know, so, you know, in the beginning when I talk about like him going to see Bruce Springsteen or him going to see, um, you know, talking heads to the police, like I, I wanted really to get kind of his chronology because a lot of the time I felt like I was piecing the stuff together and I, and I wasn't sure like if I had, um, you know, my dates right or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, You know, I I also wanted to ask them, like, uh, like I I don't know that I would have um, gotten that much candor from them, but like, I'm very interested in like the vitology kind of no code era, and like, and how like communication seemed to be like quite poor, and yet like musically they were just like quite on. Um, and, you, and, and you talk and,
0: uh, lovingly well maybe that's too strong a word but you really uh, like enjoy those albums and appreciate them and that's kind of your high water mark for them I think
1: I, I mean to me like those you know like um, just like that kind of noisiness and, and that kind of like lack of sheen like that that's just my aesthetic and, and like you know I mean the Merkin Ball songs like that, that to me is kind of my sweet spot like um, but yeah, you know, it's I, I mean in a way, like not having access to them was, you know, was a little bit of a help in that like I could I could actually think of it as like, okay, you know what, this is this is a book about Pearl Jam, obviously, but it's almost as much about like how did Pearl Jam affect like thirteen year old me, thirteen year old like Saint Vincent, thirteen year old, mm-hmm. you know, Julian Casablancas and you know, like like what was their impact in the world, which like in a sense, like, I'm not even sure that they could gauge, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's a, there's a quote, um, you know, it's like, you know, I'm the ornithologist, they're the bird, you know what I mean? Like, it's not their role to understand, like, just kind of, like, how insane their fans are.
0: <laughs> well, and it, <laughs> you know. the word I was thinking of as you were talking there is like, and reading the book feels like this way at times. It's almost like this archaeological dig of collecting this information, piecing it together. And then from that, you have more of a a bigger picture than if you were to just sit down with the band for a week and, you know, write the transcript of that, it would, it would be a very different book.
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I still think like, you know, I mean, I think Stone in particular, you know, like, I, I think that like, he's just a person who like, you know, if you actually look at the uh, – like I was thinking about this when I read your your notes and, and, and you know, your thoughts about parts of the book was like, you know, for someone who has been in the public eye for not only 30 years, probably 35, you know, between Green River and Mother Love Bone, there's a surprisingly like small amount of information about them in the public domain. You know, like there's there was a pretty good book that came out um, about Ross Gilda and about how Stone – um, you know, took a couple of trips to Denmark and to Sweden and and met the
0: families and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and when I read that, I didn't know. And because you list that in the book, I was like, Oh wow. I didn't even know that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like there's, there's lots of things like, you know, about all these guys that I like, you know, if I could do it over again, if I had another 50 pages, like I I probably would have added like, but you know, in a sense too, it's like, you know, like, I didn't want this to be about Mike McCready's alcoholism. I didn't want this to be about, you know, like, how many kids does he have? Because in a sense, like, I, I, you know, like, I I just, I don't know that that's really, like, I'll talk about, you know, their musical decisions all day. But like, I I just don't know, like, it, it, it's, it feels a little weird.
0: Yeah, it doesn't get into any, I mean, it's more about as there's some before, it's more about the, the band as a whole and their impact on crowds and society, if you want to go that far and, you know, how people have responded to them. It's, it's really, it's an, it's an excellent book. I, I very much enjoyed it. And I I have a final question. I know I'm keeping you a while, but do you have time for a final question? Yeah, for sure. Excellent. So one of the things I absolutely wanted to ask, and I was excited about 80 pages in you uh, have a chapter that's devoted to their first show in Philly back in '91, oh. yeah. and you you write at one point, "quote If there's one thing pro jam people agree on, it's this: never ever miss them in Philly." Uh, end yeah. quote. So, I, as I said early on, I, I grew up about an hour away in South Jersey, and my first time seeing Pro Jam was across the river uh, in Camden, New Jersey, which they built this pretty sweet like pavilion amphitheater thing. So I, I saw them in 1998 um, and years later, I saw them on a very hot night in July 2003 when they more or less interrupted the concert because fireworks were going on uh, across the river because Philly was celebrating like this 4th of July celebration. And Ed uh, just kind of breaks in. He's like, you know, this is the sounds of Afghanistan you're hearing. And they start playing Rockin' in the Free World. It was awesome. Um, I went to the second to last show at the Spectrum when they tore that building down in Philly. Um, and for Pro Jam 20, they end the movie with a live from a show in Philly that I was at, which blew my mind. Um, so why Philly? Like with the you know research you've done in the book, like why Philly of all the places do they seem to have this special connection with that area and the fans?
1: I mean, you'd have to ask them. My guess personally is that, you know, I mean, I love Philly myself. I like... I, I have my best friend. She's a vet, and she went to uh, Penn, you know, University of Pennsylvania Vet School. And mm-hmm. you know, I would go visit her. I don't know. We we actually went. we at that show in Camden together, where Rock and the Fair World was played, like mid first set. But um, you know, she. I think hated Philly and, and she was like, she's like, you only like this place because you know, you come for two days, you see Pearl Jam, you see Wilco, you see Radiohead, then you go home. And that was always my experience precisely. It was like, I would come in town just for that. And, and I don't know, as a New Yorker, like I've been here now for 15 years, like there's just, like, there's just something for me just to speak only for myself. Like <clears throat> there's just something about seeing a concert in Philly that is like a distinctly different order of pleasure than New York. Like, and, and I'm, I, and I'm, you know, I'm a very proud New Yorker, but like there, you know, like I, so I can't remember if it was in Camden or if it was another Philly area show, but I remember I was there with a friend of mine. We were like tailgating in one of the parking garages, just having some yinglings or something. Right. And there was like this, there is this like chant and I, <laughs> I said to my friend, I was like, "What on earth is that?" And she looked at me like with like pity and disgust, and she was like, "You idiot! That's the Philadelphia Eagles fight song, like uh, you know, like fly like, Eagles, you know, fly." And, sure. And, and I was like, "Why are they chanting like <laughs> the Eagles fight song going into the stadium?" And she and she was like, "She's like, I'm not even gonna bother like to explain it to you, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I think people just enjoy themselves like in that town, like in in a way that." They're just not as uptight and self-conscious as we are, certainly in New York or maybe even in Boston. And um, I don't know, like I, like I've seen, I may have seen Pearl Jam in Philly more than in New York between Philly and Camden, like. But um, yeah, like you know, I think. Whether it's on the East Coast, whether it's, um, you know, South America or in Italy or whatever, like those guys, you know, this is one of the things that makes them just so great is like they have this sixth sense for like when the crowd is just plugged in, like Mm -hmm. on a biochemical level. And like Philly, I just think, you know, is like probably the closest you're going to get in the States to like Argentina or, you know, Brazil or or Colombia, Chile, one of those, you know, crowds. And um I you know, I mean I was at the Ten show in in, you know, Philly, like I was at one of the spectrum shows and like I just keep thinking like, can you imagine like the next time like you know, assuming these this vaccine happens, like it's just gonna be like utterly insane like they people are not even gonna let them play like it's just gonna be like this deafening
0: roar and it's gonna be glorious i have chills as you're talking about that yeah no it's i mean like i said i grew up in that area and a fan of like the sports teams of philly and then it wasn't until i moved to the midwest for grad school that i realized like oh it's not like that everywhere whether or not your team wins or loses is not life and death and like going, oh, absolutely! Going to the game isn't this tribal us against them, like win or die situation. Like, I remember, I came out here and I was listening out here. I'm in Minnesota now. Like, listening to sports talk after a game, the Vikings lost, and I'm like, wait, like, why aren't people yeah. screaming for the coach to get fired? And yeah, like, there's bad things about Philly, and they take it yeah. too far, and it's it's primal, and. That leads to some some nasty business too. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think you're probably onto something there. That I, I think there's a a guardrail that in general those fans will step over that many yeah. other places won't. And I've been to some concerts out here pre COVID. We my buddy and I saw saw uh, Jack White, and it was my first time seeing him. So I was like so fired up. And it was like this polite, Midwestern crowd that would like, hey, clap. And I'm like, why aren't you people just freaking out and going nuts? Um, huh. And you don't have to ask that question in Philly. Like, though they sort of respect, like if a band is put it out there, like they'll give it back to them. Um, yeah.
1: No, Philly is. I mean, it's exactly like you're saying. It's like New Orleans. You know, it's a place that people are proud to be from unless you're like my friend and went to vet school there, but, uh, you know, it's, and, and I, you know, I'm from, I'm originally from South Florida, you know, a place where no one is proud to be from. So I, I really like, um, you know, places that like people stick up for where, you know, their hometown and, um, and if that's not Philly, I don't know what it is.
0: Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I just wanted to thank you for joining me. I definitely highly recommend, uh, again, the book's called not for you Pearl jam in the present tense, uh, for listeners out there. If you know anyone in your life, even tangentially interested in Pearl jam, uh, then this book would be a great holiday gift that the holidays are coming up. I don't know if we'll be able to get together for them at all, but you know, you could mail it to them. I'm sure. Uh, (laughs) thank you for coming on the show and indulging me as I speak about really one of my favorite topics, uh, in the world. Um, please tell everyone listening. How can they find your book? How can they buy your book and, and where can they find you on social media? If, if you want to chat.
1: Thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, there is a uh, Twitter account for the book. It's at PJ, not for you. Um, and the book is out now as of October 15th and available at your local mom and pop indie bookseller. And, uh, any online behemoths you may know in addition yes
0: so yeah thank you again for your time and for folks listening out there if you enjoyed this conversation uh you can follow the show on twitter at the id dm uh, t-h-e-i-d-d-m on twitter uh, you can subscribe to the podcast ego check with the IDM on your uh, favorite podcast clients like itunes or spotify And certainly contact me with questions. It's great to get feedback uh, on these interviews and and hear from folks. So, Ronan, thanks again for writing this book. I very much enjoyed it during some of my quarantining time uh, since I've been (laughs) locked in the house, working from home since March. So uh, this book was a wonderful distraction, and uh, I really valued all the effort you put into it.
1: Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate it just how much time and thought and care you you put into these questions and uh, taking the time to read the book. Hope we get a chance to do it again soon.
0: Yeah. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay. So long.